Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 241 as we begin inexorably to approach Karathras and whatever it is that awaits us there. Um, I am. Uh, I don't know how many of you got to see this morning. Um, I got to. I was on a uh, uh, a live stream uh, with Nerd of the Rings on his channel, uh, along with the game developers for the Return uh, to Moria, uh, the new game that is uh, dropping next year in 2023. Um, but uh, it was really fun to talk about that. It was the sort of the first sneak peek. Showed some screenshots and and stuff. No no uh, gameplay on display yet, but we're getting there. Um, I've seen some actually, but I know they're they're still changing stuff. Um, so that's uh, uh, that's been a lot of fun. But uh, anyway, yeah, <laughs> Spectre. I'm glad to, uh, that that stream had you excited. It's it's been it's been really cool. Like that. Um, uh, that has been a, a delightful project to be uh, to be working on, to be working with John Paul and Farah on and others. Um, we've had lots of really fun discussions about dwarves, and uh, I thought I thought it's been uh, it's been it's been really cool. There's been a bunch of times, of course, that I've been thinking of it uh, when been talking about Rings of Power stuff and uh, thinking about some of the things that. Some of the adaptation choices that uh, uh, that we made uh, in that game, um, and thinking, uh, doing some comparison and contrast. So it'll be interesting to see when uh, uh, when things uh, come together there. But um, yeah, so Bjorning. Uh, so here's the interesting thing about the game. So the question is, uh, do dwarven uh, women in the, in the game have beards? Here's the thing. Um, Pretty much the only dwarves you encounter, or almost the only dwarves you encounter, are like the players. Like the whole premise of the game, it's a survival crafting game. So, like, you know, after the opening cinematics, you're going to basically start the game alone, <laughs> right? That's the whole point. You're alone, and you've got to like, you know, survive and uh, get stuff done. Um, so it'd be like you and the other players that you can play with, which is up to seven. You can play with eight uh, people total. Uh, so you. Um, uh, so, and uh, it's the character creation is really customizable. So, it's kind of up to you exactly uh, how that how that goes. So, um, anyway, yeah, um, yes, you can play as a dwarf woman, and yes, you can choose to have a beard. That is, those are absolutely. You can also choose an accent. Uh, there are multiple accents. You do not have to be a Scottish accent dwarf if you don't want to. Of accents that you can choose from, which is kind of fun. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So that's so that is exactly that is exactly what is happening. Um, uh, yeah, it should be some of the first like non-Scottish dwarves, perhaps ever. Uh, so anyway, that's uh, yes. There are accent choices. Um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it, sh it it should be really cool. It should be really cool. I don't know if Minnesota is an option, Valori. Uh, I, I don't know for sure that it isn't. <laughs> I think it kind of should be, um, but uh, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, uh, anyway, yeah. So um, uh, yeah, it's, and uh, and 
you can choose from because of course as we talked about in the stream um, for something like this uh, when Gimli is sort of announcing that it's time to retake Moria this is a big deal Khazad-dûm means a lot to the dwarves as we saw um, earlier in the third age of course when Thor was murdered and all of the dwarves from all seven clans gathered together uh, in order to help to fight the war with the orcs the war for vengeance um, and uh, so dwarves are gathering from all over the place which means you can choose uh, all kinds of things uh, so you can choose to be a dwarf like one of the dwarves from the Red Mountains in the east uh, pretty cool but um, anyway uh, <laughs> so uh, so we'll see I actually don't know what all the accent uh, options are I haven't uh, I haven't actually been through the character creation uh, yet um, but uh, but we they, we've been talking about the uh, the additional accents and stuff. Uh, Zeev, I personally would kind of hope that there would be like a nice Yiddish accent. That would be fun. Uh, <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. Um, uh, anyway, so yeah, the game's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, I definitely commend that. I think uh, I know there, there, we, we can't announce a date yet. There's no official date. Um, but uh, it will be next year. We'll be setting that date uh, as soon as we can. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> so, uh, that was, uh, I, I just wanted to draw your attention to that. If you haven't had a chance to see it and if you're interested, uh, at all, uh, in that, um, again, it's, a, of course, it's a very different game from Lotro, uh, you know, much more, much more restricted. It's just, just inside Moria. Um, uh, in fact, that's kind of, you're, you're going to be kind of locked inside Moria. Uh, and, uh, if you, uh, manage to get out, of Moria at any point, uh, you'll have won. So, uh, and the game will be over. So it really is just restricted to Khazad Doom there. Um, and uh, so, yeah, very different kind of game, a very different style of game. Uh, should be a fun, complimentary gameplay experience. Uh, JJ, I, um, I, well, I can't give away too many spoilers, but I don't think there's a pie delivery quest. Um, not only because you have very few means of making pies, but you really have very few people to deliver them to. So, uh, but you know, it's a fairly flexible environment, so maybe you could contrive pie deliveries if you really, really wanted to. Um, it is not called Escape from Moria, um, though, because, uh, you know, you're not merely attempting to escape, right? I mean, you're a dwarf, and you're returning to Moria. Uh, there's uh, stuff to be figured out and uh, uh, things to be done, so... Yeah, JJ does say it wouldn't feel like Tolkien without pie delivery. <laughs> I hear you. I do. I hear you. Um, but, uh, you know, as I say, it's a, <clears throat> it's a survival crafting game. So if you can survive and craft pies, you can probably find somebody to deliver them to, I think. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure you can make it happen if you need to. Uh-oh. Narnian's still hiding behind the column. That will never do. All right. Anyway, let us get back to the text. Uh, here this evening. So um, we are now uh, heading back out, heading back out towards Karathras. Now we're drawing inexorably closer uh, to the mountain here <clears throat> and should be approaching it within the next month or so. Um, but um, uh, here we are. All that. So sorry, context. That's what I was remembering. So remember last week we were looking at the Hobbit responses. Um, and in particular, we were ending by looking at the particular ways in which Sam was interacting with Frodo. Um, the way in which he seemed resistant 
to the sort of hopeful words of Gandalf, right? The Omdir-oriented words of Gandalf. Um, but then was um, encouraging Frodo, I think, in his different way, um, expressing, um, giving voice, perhaps, to some of Frodo's own uh, misgivings and inviting Frodo, I think, to laugh at him. Um, we were looking at Sam as Jester uh, in that uh, in that last moment, which I think is something that we will see him doing uh, off and on again uh, throughout their journey. But now we resume the action. We resume the travel. And I always love these travel paragraphs because I have to admit that when I'm reading my when I'm reading the book through on my own, these are exactly the paragraphs that it is um, easiest to pay less attention to, to just kind of skim through them, right? Um, So it's really fun to pause on these. All that day, the company remained in hiding. The dark birds passed over now and again, but as the westering sun grew red, they disappeared southwards. At dusk, the company set out, and turning now half-east, they steered their course towards Carothras, which, far away still, glowed faintly red in the last light of the vanished sun. One by one, white stars sprang forth as the sky faded. Guided by Aragorn, they struck a good path. It looked to Frodo like the remains of an ancient road that had once been been broad and well-planned, from Holland to the mountain pass. The moon, now at the full, rose over the mountains and cast a pale light in which the shadows of stones were black. Many of them looked to have been worked by hands, though now they lay tumbled and ruinous in a bleak, barren land. Okay. Yes, two juice man, I was noticing that too, that mountain pass is hyphenated here. Um, meaning that that is a phrase that... So you hyphenate to... When you hyphenate two words, you're linking them together, right? That is, so if you just have to the mountain pass as two separate words, right, you have uh, a noun and then you have a word which is acting like an adjective, right? Um, Which pass? The mountain pass. Uh, But um, here, whenever you hyphenate uh, or when you hyphenate something or you make it one word, um, you are kind of bringing those together as a uh, as a single unit, right? Um, and here, this is where exactly a, a compound word, a single compound word. Um, and that, I think, is very suggestive. I, I do myself hold to the, um, well, I hold loosely anyway, uh, to the Sparrow Alden hyphenation doctrine, which says that when you see a phrase like that, which is unusually hyphenated, that is in, is a phrase that's hyphenated, which is not usually hyphenated in normal English usage, um, Tolkien is putting that hyphenated phrase forward as a single compound noun, the way that you would if you were pointing to Oh, like the, that perhaps in your as if you're translating from a language in which there is a single word um, 
like for instance if you were translating uh, from the Inuit language and were translating one of their many many words for snow you couldn't just translate them all as snow right you would have to find some you'd have to put together some kind of phrase right in English in order to try to capture the different nuances of the meaning for the many different words for snow that they have right um, that kind of thing um, where you have a more specific word uh, in one language and you are trying to render that in another language. Um, now again, the, the, I say I loosely go along with that doctrine. Um, I say loosely just because I doubt that Tolkien necessarily was always actually thinking of a word in the putative language from which he is translating. Um, that is, this is translated from Westron, obviously, right? That's the, the sort of textual premise of the story. Um, but I do think that that is um, very much kind of the way that Tolkien is thinking, that when he hyphenates words, he's not just doing it randomly. Um, he's not just being, like, silly or inconsistent. Um, he is inviting us to think about those things as compound words, as words that might have a single uh, word in another language, perhaps, in one of the Elvish languages, for instance. Um, but... Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So, um, <laughs> Dolor Stroke says, sounds like the painful habit of forming highly compounded single words, uh, as in German. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, and Tolkien kind of loved Germanic languages. So, uh, yeah, I think that's also quite possible, um, uh, to be, uh, to be a, a sort of, uh, to have to have impact here um yes um okay um the other thing yes people were pointing out that both sun and moon are capitalized um yes i agree that that is an interesting and important thing um as the westering sun and in the first paragraph and the moon now at the full this is we received a reminder long ago, back in Brie, uh, that the sun and the moon are personified. Um, not only in the Man in the Moon song that Frodo sings in Brie, but also in the footnote uh, that accompanied it, uh, in which Tolkien was explaining about how the hobbits refer to the sun as she, right? Um, and uh, so this is not, these are not common nouns. They're differentiated from the other uh, common nouns, right, that we see. Capitalization means those are being used like they are proper nouns, as if they were a title for the thing, right, the name of a thing, rather than just a noun. For the, It's not just a son, it's the son, capital S. Um, and so that kind of memory of the... Um, of the personification, um, the personality of these things, does kind of put a different um, a different emphasis on things. Somebody look this up for us. Is that consistent? This, these two paragraphs are, of course, it's very noticeable because we get one of each right in these two paragraphs. Does he always do that? I don't remember. Um. Can somebody do a quick search for Sun and Moon in the Lord of the Rings, in the electronic Lord of the Rings, and tell me 
uh, if we get, or do, of course look at the Digital Tolkien Project uh, and find it there. Um, and let me know how common this is. Is this common or is this uncommon? Um, and of course, don't count when we're talking about them used in other proper nouns, such as the Tower of the Sun and the Tower of the Moon, for instance, where they would be capitalized, of course, as part of the names of Minas Anor and Minas Ithil. Um, but I would say, uh, I would say more, yeah, so just standing by themselves. Um, Yeah, that's true, Matt. I'd never really thought about that, too. Um, about how the female personification of the sun breaks the English pun between S-O-N and S-U-N that Shakespeare so enjoyed using. Oh, my goodness. Yes, that's that was like that pun was a uh, has been a staple for of poets for centuries uh, of various kinds. I mean, my goodness, there's like entire branches of uh, Christian poetic and artistic iconography, which is based upon that pun, um, for instance. Um, but, um, okay, so Praise says it looks like normally they're not capitalized. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. Praise, when you say normally, um, when you say normally, what does that mean? Uh, that is, how unca... I mean, I, I'm asking you to do quick counting and stuff, but we can, can we get some kind of, some kind of a sense of how unusual it is? Um, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just interested to see if this, uh, if this passage is very singular. Um, okay, so they're, they're capitalized when Gollum crawls under the mountain. Oh, in, in Fellowship of the Ring, right, the Gandalf story. Um, he had forgotten the sun. Um, when Gandalf says that, that's capitalized then. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, Aspen, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Well, first I want to see. Um, I mean, we don't, we don't have time necessarily to do this inquiry at full right here. Um, I think, um, uh, we don't want to spoil the wonder with haste, uh, but it would be interesting. The walking song capitalizes them. Okay. Okay. That's an interesting data point praise. Um, notice that both of the other two have been in recalled accounts. That is within a poetic song and then within Gandalf's story. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yep. Yep. Exactly, Bjorning. So let's, um, I'll give you some time if we can get some actual sort of stats together. Uh, yeah. Okay. I was just going to give some different scenarios. It would tell us different things. If, uh, sun and moon were capitalized like half the time, I would, well, there's a lot, there's a lot we could make out of this. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. Let's not speculate. Let's not speculate in the absence of of of, of data. Um, but I would suspect. So, by the way, this reminds me of uh, a moment when I think um, Alyssa House Thomas solved something. Um, 
this came up, this kind of thing came up a lot when I was writing my Hobbit book and going back and forth with the Houghton Mifflin proofreaders about it because I was following Tolkien's usage and they kept trying to correct it. I think I've told that story before, but, uh, but the point is there were several times it was one of the things which really kind of drew my attention. The, the editors were sort of quick to say, yeah, like Tolkien is really inconsistent. They, they, like the hyphen thing came up like as I was using the hyphenated phrases as he used them and they kept fixing them. And I'm like, no, I'm following Tolkien's usage. Um, and they're like, he's inconsistent. Why should you be? And I'm like, because I don't think he's arbitrarily inconsistent. I think he might have had a reason. Um, and one of the other issues specifically that we came up with, because it was a capitalization issue, which is why I'm raising it now, um, was about Elf. Like he would, he sometimes capitalized, again, this is in The Hobbit, he would sometimes capitalize Elf and he would sometimes not capitalize Elf. And again, there was a tendency on the part of the editors and proofreaders just to dismiss this as inconsistency uh, on his part. Like sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And so their response to this was, let's just decide one and be consistent. Uh, and instead, I was like, actually, um, no, let's look and see if there's a pattern um, I, again, I, I see that he is inconsistent in the sense that he does it sometimes one way and sometimes another, but let's instead see if we can see if there is a, a pattern, if there is a, a, you know, a rule behind this, if there's a, a reason that he's choosing the one over the other. There might be a consistency that underlies what looks to be a mere inconsistency. And so I was working, and Alyssa House Thomas was helping me uh, with my Hobbit book. She was my Tolkien fact checker uh, when I was writing my Hobbit book. And... Um, she figured it out, and I think she was exactly correct. Um, the pattern played out everywhere. Basically, when Tol Tolkien would use the capital E, Elf, when he was referring to the people, um, but when he was uh, referring to just an individual. So, like, if he were saying something like, and there was an elf over there, that's not a sentence from The Hobbit, but if it was like, and over there was an elf, uh, he would use a lowercase e, because it's just a common noun. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, if he would say like, uh, you know, it was one of the elven folk, he would capitalize E because that was referring to the people, the elves, capital E. Um, so I bring this up because, of course, I suspect that there is a reason why he's capitalizing sun twice in that first paragraph, moon once in this second paragraph. If he doesn't always do that, I... I'm going to operate under the premise and, you know, we can we can look and see if we can't figure out what the rule would be, then maybe we just conclude that he was making a mistake, not saying it's impossible uh, for him to make mistakes. But in my experience, uh, in my experience, the people who assume that he's just being thoughtlessly inconsistent have a poor track record. Um, and I, I, I so anyway, we've uh, uh We've sometimes even caught Christopher Tolkien out on that uh, in the history of Middle Earth. Um, but um, anyway, so we'll so we'll see. Um, all right, let's see. Um, sorry, I'm pausing to see how to uh, how to proceed. If somebody would like to tell you what, why don't those those of you who would be interested in trying to whip together a quick report on the usage of sun and moon in the Lord of the Rings, um, why don't you go over to the um, uh, lore hall, the one that what the other one, lore hall without, yeah, lore talk without Corey. That's that one. 
um, to that channel and you can compile some stats there, I'd be interested to see things like what percentage of them are and are not capitalized. If the capitalized ones are the minority, it would be interesting to see some of those examples collected together so we could begin looking at that. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, um, I don't want to make you guys miss the whole rest of class uh, in order to do that. But um, uh, And of course, if you wanted to compile a report and send it to me by email, we could present it next week uh, as well. So, um, but, uh, cause yeah, this is definitely something, um, <laughs> I am, I am ill-equipped to try to speculate on this. Um, this is especially, of course, this is a thing I'm, and I will admit also, this is another reason why I'm interested in this. Uh, this is of course, one of the things that I don't get listening to the audiobooks. Um, the differentiation between capital letters and non-capital letters is something that doesn't come through in the audio reading. Uh, so I'm particularly interested in this. Um, but uh, anyway, um, okay. Good. Arnold, good. Let's come back to that. So I'm going to go and discuss the rest of the passage and we can come back to the sun and moon if, uh, if we get some, some, some data that we can look at. Uh, before the end of class. Arnold says, I don't know if someone else commented on it, but reading through this passage definitely removes all that wholesome feeling about Holland that we had uh, just a few paragraphs before. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that began to leave as soon as Aragorn came down to inform everybody how creepy everything was, right, about this hush that was spread over the land. Um all that day, the company remained in hiding. Um, so remember, they're in the same spot where they remember when they were all laughing and having a good time, right? And Aragorn had to come down and tell them all to shut up, right? Um, you know, to be quiet and put out the fire and everything else. Um, they're in the same place. It's so I, I, that is to say, um, you know, Arnold, the um, the. It's not just that, like, as they've moved through Holland, things have changed. Things have suddenly changed. They are in the same spot that having said that, you know, Holland was, uh, that there was a wholesome air about Holland, um, Gandalf leads them to this spot and they set up their cheerful camp and they're having a cheerful time and anticipating a fun, you know, 36 hours of rest and fellowship and comparatively good food. Uh, and uh, and now while they're in the same place, you know, instead of this fun, jovial uh, time that they were having together, now they're just in hiding. They're just remaining in hiding, you know, hunched down under these holly trees, no fire, no talk, um, and just trying to remain hidden as the dark birds pass over uh, now and again throughout the day. Um, so this day, which was, you know, meant to be the very beginning of their day of rest, becomes instead a day of, uh, of, of dread and concern. They could be discovered at any minute. Um, and, uh, but fortunately, the birds... Uh, the birds disappear. They disappeared southwards. So they came from the south, and they head back down back to the south. They're continuing to pass over. Um, this certainly seems to reinforce the idea that the birds don't didn't see them 
don't know where they are. They've successfully remained concealed from the birds, despite the fact that they're passing over, you know, again, now and again, no particular focus, no, uh, we're not told any further details, and the birds are only heading south um, as the westering sun grew red, that is, as the day starts to fade. Um, I don't know what that means exactly, if that means they are um, they are done exploring this far north, right? If they are... Um, uh, if this means that the um, the birds are merely um, uh, uh, are they going back? Are, are they continuing their explorations, or are they returning to report? You know, to where they came from. If indeed reporting is exactly what they do, um, we don't know. We don't know. And this, by the way, is it seems to me rather a motif of this whole segment. Um, I love pausing. I've been looking forward to pausing and thinking through um, this whole section, trying to understand better what's going on uh, here in these passages. But we have to acknowledge, I think, that Tolkien is deliberately not telling us. Um, We don't know for sure exactly what the birds were up to. We know it's unnatural. There's, and they were, they're obviously spies. What would they do? How would they work? What was their mission, precisely? Um, and what will they report back and how? Uh, these are questions that are not answered. They come from the South and return to the South, and we'll never find out exactly what went on there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's going to be where it's going to be more of that kind of thing as we as we move forward. At dusk, the company set out, and turning now half east, they steered their course toward Car- towards Carathras, which far away still glowed faintly red in the last light of the vanished sun. One by one, white stars sprang forth as the sky faded. Um. Notice that not only are they not, this was the night that they were supposed to rest through, right? And they're setting out as quickly as possible, right? There's evidence here that they're trying to cover as much distance as they possibly can. Um, at, they're setting out at dusk. The sun is still shining on the top of Carathras, right? Which uh, is sufficiently tall that it still has the light on it, um, even though it's dark-ish, right, down where, down where they are. Um, the, but they're out and traveling before the stars are even out in the sky, right? Um, and yes, I agree, Bjorning, Carothra's glowing faintly red makes it ominous, even in the last light of the friendly sun. It sure does. It sure does. Um, Yeah, yeah. Guided by Aragorn, they struck a good path. Once again, we see Aragorn's active involvement. I've said before from what we've seen earlier in this chapter, um, from the time when they were standing on the doorstep at Rivendell waiting to depart, through the uh, discussions at their pauses uh, since then, 
it is very clear that Gandalf is the leader, that Gandalf is in charge. But Aragorn is extremely useful, right? Aragorn is the guide. And I think that that's important um, because he will... I, I think it's important to keep this in mind as we watch Aragorn's role. Aragorn, of course, is going to come to the point. It's not going to really happen. Until, you know, he will come to one important point when Gandalf falls. He will come to another important point, of course, uh, at the end of, uh, you know, in the breaking of the Fellowship and then in the beginning of the Two Towers thereafter um, of his role as guide uh, and his role at that point of decision maker. Um, that's going to be uh, a really important moment. So notice that Aragorn is actively their guide uh, all the way, all the way through here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, Jarko. Sorry for the spoiler there. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Gandalf might trip and fall at some point, but don't worry about it. I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, okay. They struck a good path. It looked to Frodo like the remains of an ancient road that had once been broad and well-planned from Holland to the mountain pass. They are on the remains of an ancient road, an ancient road which was an ancient elf road, right? Um, this, to me, has vague hobbit echoes to it. That is the elf roads through Mirkwood. Um, there is this. Uh, there is this sense. So we're told merely about its breadth and good planning, right? Uh, the ancient road that they are on, this suspiciously good path that Aragorn has found for them, right? Um, but this is an elf road. The elf road from Eregion to Lorien is clearly what it was, right? We know where the pass, the mountain pass. Um, over near next to Karathras, right, um, goes and it goes straight down into the Nanduhirion and then to Lorien, right? So that's the road that they're on. We don't exactly get the same kind of, uh, you know, don't leave the path um, uh, uh, thing, right? Um, not that kind, we're not told that there's that kind of safety here. Um, but it is interesting to me that we're following an elf path through the wilderness like that. And um, M.V. Liddell, I agree, it does seem like a kind of an obvious place to watch um, uh, if you were a spy, for instance. And it's another reason that I think it's the second piece of evidence I think we get in this passage that Aragorn and Gandalf are in a hurry. Right? They're not just, they've not just decided to try the pass. They're rushing the pass. Uh, they are attempting to get over the pass as quickly as possible, and I would say they seem to be willing to take risks in order to do that. Yes, they're traveling by night, so they're not taking as big a risk as they might have, right? They're not just being like, well, forget the birds. I'm sure we can dodge them. Um, they are headed straight there by the straightest, best, fastest road. Um, if it you know, since it is an ancient road that had once been broad and well-planned, it is certain... I mean, it was thousands of years ago, so there's going to be some rough stuff on it yet. But clearly, it would have 
passed over you know the smoothest areas so like the, it's it's not exactly going to be like you can still drive a cart down it but um but surely it will involve less uh you know uh less trouble like up and down hills and over cliffs and things like that right um but um yeah yeah um so right i don't think lady lakata i'm not ready to say that this is careless yet um i'm not ready to say that it's careless yet but i am saying uh that um I am saying that they're, they are slightly increasing their risk. We don't know exactly by what paths Aragorn was guiding them before, but in the description of what we got before, it was not at all clear to me that he was prioritizing quickest and fastest and smoothest ways. Uh, in fact, the way that they were kind of creeping and going over really rough ground suggested to me that for those first two weeks, the priority was on concealment was on going in directions that people wouldn't expect where they wouldn't be looked for um not just going by the easiest and most open road that would be fastest but now they do seem to be going that way um and again i take that as similar to them setting out right at dusk not even really waiting for it to get full dark they're clearly it seems, trying to maximize the amount of time traveling that they have, and the road that they're choosing would seem to be trying to maximize their speed as well. And remember, Aragorn was saying he does not know how they can be concealed on the pass. The pass is going to expose them. You can't sneak over the pass. Um, at least, so Aragorn suggested. Um, no, Gandalf. Sorry, it was Gandalf suggesting. I'm getting it backwards in my head. It was Gandalf saying that he does not know how they could be concealed when they try to go over the pass. Um, so it se that seems to me to be a big reason why they're willing to take more risks now. Speed is better. And uh, if they're going to go over the pass, then, you know, that is not the maximum... Uh, uh, the, the maximally hidden way to do it anyhow. So um, uh, so they're not even sort of uh, trying it. Um, I agree. Well, Bjorning, I think you're right that um, speed is one way to avoid enemies. Stealth is not the only way. I think that's true. Um, but they're not exactly... I mean, if, they're, if there are birds searching for them, they're not going to out-hike birds, right? No matter how swift the path, no matter how straight and clear the path might be. Um, yeah. Um, Abelard, uh, Abelard, I agree. Uh, if they have been discovered, uh, they want to get further away before whoever shows up. Um, yeah, exactly. If they have been spotted, they don't, they don't know. Um, it is important to recall that... In, in the movie, when, uh, you know, when the film depicts the crows as noticing them, um, despite their cunning hiding, uh, and then reporting back to Saruman, Saruman is then able to get up on top of his tower and uh, call down lightning upon them from where they are, right? 
That's not exactly how it works, nor exactly what they would um, <laughs> exactly what they would be thinking of. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Right. And Dan, yeah, you're certainly right that the past would expose them if somebody were to do something rash like using magic to create fire. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, yep. Anyway, and I did want to observe, as uh, a couple of you, I think, were pointing out before, how he concludes this paragraph with that lovely alliteration in that last sentence. One by one, white stars sprang forth as the sky faded. Sprang forth as the sky faded, right? The, the stars sprang forth, sky faded, S-S-F, S-F, right? Um, uh, there's a kind of cadence to that. And notice he does the same thing in the next paragraph. Many of them look to have been worked by hands, though now they all lay tumbled and ruinous in a bleak, barren land. Um, if the last sentence of paragraph one of this slide is brought to you by the letters S and F, the last sentence of paragraph two of this slide is brought to you by the letters B and L, right? From tumble uh, to bleak, barren land. Um, yeah, and uh, again, that I think is, I do believe, it's that kind of a, it's it's like a cadence thing, right? It's a way of kind of wrapping up um, the, uh, wrapping up the paragraph, right? Um, a, a sort of, uh, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like when Shakespeare concludes a scene with a rhymed couplet, it's a it's an it's an audible signal so that if you're listening to the play um, as you as you would be, of course, nobody read plays. You you heard a play. You don't you don't read a play. Um, if you're ever sitting and reading Shakespeare out of a book, you're well, I won't say you're doing it wrong. That's a little harsh, but you're certainly not having the experience of that play that the author intended you to have. Right. You have to know that you're you're doing an approximation of it. Right. Um, and uh uh, anyway, so the 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 couplets give you signals, right? You know, okay, like the scene has come to an end, um, and now you're ready to to brace yourself. Because of course, remember on the Shakespearean stage, there's no um, there's no curtain, right? Um, if any of you have been to the Globe, you know this, right? So you got two characters over there talking, their conversation finishes, and sometimes two characters who will already be out standing on the other side of the uh, of the stage will start talking. So in order to, you know, the, these are the kinds of signals, uh, audible signals that he gives. And I, it's my sense that Tolkien is doing a similar thing here uh, with his alliteration, um, that he is, you can, you can hear where the paragraphs end. And this I, I, you can hear on the audiobook. You can't hear the capital letters, but you can hear, uh, you can hear this in the audiobook. Um, but uh, anyway, speaking of the capital letters, uh, Praise, I saw your report before, but I didn't read it. Hang on, come back to it. Okay. Praise is a rough count. Um, so, uh, and I'm going to guess, Praise, that this is from the whole Lord of the Rings, not just the Fellowship, but you can correct me if I'm wrong about that. Um, 
So sun appear, the word sun appears more than 300 times in lowercase and 99 times in capital and the moon 115 lowercase and 55 capital. Okay, so about a third in both cases fairly consistently, a third-ish, between a third and a half um, are capitalized. Okay, very interesting. Um, so that's fairly consistent. Okay, so praise you were including words like moonlight and sunset. Okay, okay. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder what it would be without those. Yeah. Um. I wonder what it would be without those. That's interesting to notice. Um, well, let me ask this question another way. Those compound words like moonlight or sunset, um, are those ever capitalized? My guess would be no, but I wonder. Um, if those are never capitalized, if the, well, I guess we could say this the other way around. Are the only instances of the capitalized versions, are they, is it just the simple word sun and moon? Um, and of course you have to, you know, discount uh, things like when they start a sentence, obviously. Um, right, Moon Tower certainly would not count, uh, April. I would rule that out uh, on principle because it's part of a proper noun, right? The Moon Tower. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No, no, again, I would, um, I would caution people against theorizing. Remember what Sherlock says about this. Right. Um, never theorize in the absence of data. Um, we need to we need to collect the data before we can see uh, what it might point to. Um, OK, but. But it's that's a pretty widespread that. So one thing that it shows is that on the one hand, um, on the one hand, this passage where we get the capitalized sun twice and moon once is not exceptional, right? It's, uh, it's unusual, but it's not strange. Um, it happens a bunch of times. I mean, if the word sun is capitalized 98 other times or 96, I guess, or 97, I guess other times, um, in, uh, uh, in the book that obviously shows this, this, passage isn't anything special in that regard. However, if it's not capitalized another 200 times, then it shows that there is some... when it... that this is still in the minority. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. I'd have to look at them. So what is a proper noun? A noun which is used as a name, basically. As a name or title. Again, like the example I gave from The Hobbit, um, when you're using a name as a common noun, right? Uh, like the word elf as you might use human, um, 
Uh, it just, of course, and we're used to this. Tolkien uses the word man all the time. Um, and we know the difference between when Tolkien uses the capital M man and when he uses the lowercase m man. Um, he makes that distinction all the time. And the difference is common and proper noun. Uh, the one time it is the name of the species, right? Um, the other time it is just, just a common noun, uh, like man, woman, and child. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Okay. Um, okay. So Prey says, I think the instances of compound words were lowercase. Subtract about 25 moons and about a hundred suns. Okay. Well, if we take a hundred suns out because it was sunlight or sunset or sunrise or things like that, um, if we eliminate those and we just say the sun, that makes it 50, 50, which is fascinating. And if we take out 25 moons, it's that brings that pretty close to 50-52, right? That brings us down to what? Uh, yeah, 50 out of 90, a little more than 50%. Okay. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, Yeah, no, I think... Oh, sorry, Praise, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I thought you said that there were, of the 300 times, 99 were capitalized. Maybe I was, maybe I was misunderstanding. Um, you, can, you can tell me if I'm right about that. I, I thought you had said it was 99 out of 300, and so, therefore, if we subtract 100, it's 99 out of 200. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, so it's... So it was 300, now down to 200. So it is a third, not a half. Okay. Crayon Mancer. Uh, okay, right, they're separate from each other. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, I was misunderstanding that. Okay, great. So it's, it is, it was a quarter, and removing the hundred takes it down to a third. Okay, okay. So again, still unusual, but, but it happens um, all over the place. Yeah. Well, it's hard with numbers this high. I mean, it's a little time consuming um, to go through and look at patterns. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it does sound like a moot paper, Rowan. Um, yeah, I agree. Interesting. Yeah. Praise says that some of the moons relate to the man in the moon. Um, like in the phrase, the white horses of the moon, capital M. Yeah, I wonder, moon is proportionally a little bit higher than sun, um, as far as the per percentage that are capitalized. But I wonder, praise, there are fewer in the first place, fewer references to the moon than to the sun. Um, and so, praise, I wonder if how much of that is thrown off by the poem, right? Because the, you know, the moon, there are a whole bunch of uses of the word moon uh, in the context of that song, right? Um yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Um, and yes, someone was pointing out that the word Earth is never capitalized. Well, that tracks. Earth. The Earth is never personified. 
in Tolkien's world, is it? Right? There is no Mother Earth in Middle Earth. No. I don't think ever. By anybody. Whereas the sun and moon, of course, are very definitely personified within within his mythology. Um, does Arda appear in the Lord of the Rings? Well, people with electronic texts could look that up. I would say... No, I don't remember it. My memory's not always perfect for these things, but... Um, okay, no Arda? Yeah, no, okay, good. People are looking it up. I don't think so. I don't think, yeah, maybe in the appendices, but I, I don't remember it being in the main text either. Um, okay. Okay. Um, right. Um, Amanmoto, I think that's actually a really good illustration. Um, okay, so... Uh, <laughs> yes. April points out best use of moon in a compound word award goes to star moon. Yes, exactly. It could only be better if it were sun moon, right? Then we get them both. Uh, anyway, Amamoto is saying, it's thinking about the um, passage in the description of, uh, of Minas Tirith, which I was just looking at with uh, Alan Sisto on the Prancing Pony podcast a couple weeks ago. And upon its outthrust knee was the guarded city with its seven walls of stone so strong and old that it seemed to have been not builded but carven by giants out of the bones of the earth. Um, and the question was, is, is this personification or no? Yes, it is personification uh, that the earth has bones. Um, therefore, you know, um, extending a metaphor to suggest that the earth is a vertebrate, right? Um, but um, but it's a kind of uh, it's kind of an exception that proves the rule. That is, this is a metaphorical comparison um, of the rocks to the bones of the earth. But there's no implication that that there actually is a person, or there actually are bones, right? They are like bones. Um, again, it's um, it's a it's a personific it's, it is a personification metaphor, but it um, it does not suggest that the earth actually is a person in the same way that when the hobbits refer, you know, when they say about the sun, when they use a personal pronoun for the sun, right? She won't show her face again today of the sun invites us to think of the sun as a person, right? Like they're talking about the sun as if she is a person, um, whereas nobody talks about the earth like that. Uh, and you can use a metaphor like that to say, it is like the bones of some, uh, you know, ancient strong creature, the bones of the very, you know, the very bones of the earth itself. Um, but you know you're using a metaphor when you say that, right? Whereas when you say the sun won't show her face again today, I'm thinking, um, you're not using a metaphor in the same way. Like she doesn't have a face exactly. I mean, it's, it is metaphorical, but do you, do you feel the difference between those two things, right? The one sort of almost takes for granted that the sun is a person. Um, the sort of metaphor is speaking of her as if, you know, she's hiding her face for the reasons that a person might hide her face or something like that. Um, but uh, the, to say the bones of the earth is not to say the same sort of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's a great question. And no, I think... Um, Mad Violinist, not in Middle-earth. Um, no, I don't think that we have... 
Um, of course, the word Earth is conspicuously and consistently not capitalized in the hyphenated phrase Middle Earth, um, and that seems uh, that seems that seems important. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, JJ, that reference to Arda is that is that in the appendices? There list of words there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Dan is wondering if Gollum's yellow face is also feminine. Um, he doesn't gender them, the white face and the yellow face. I don't remember Gollum ever referring to them with gendered pronouns. Uh, yeah, so the reference to Arda is in um, Appendix E, right? That's what I was guessing, but... Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so, and there, it's not even... Uh, it doesn't even mean, like, Arda, exactly. Yeah, exactly, JJ, as you said before, it's not even it's not even the name of the world uh, when it's given. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay. Um, yes, absolutely, Geiger. The hyphen rule applies to Middle Earth as well. Um, yes. Yes. Um, uh, of course, Geiger, in this case, we have... We've, we even know what language it's translated from, right? Um, Midyard, uh, or, or, or uh, Midyard, uh, um, it's, uh, uh, yeah, from Old English and Old Norse. Um, Midgard is Middle Earth, right? So uh, both Old Norse and Old English have words that are being, that we don't have a word for, right? but which is translated with the hyphenated phrase Middle Earth. Um, so yeah, in that, in that one, we kind of know it. Um, and obviously, he has imported that idea. Um, the elves have a word for Middle Earth as well. Um, a couple words uh, in, their, in their several languages. And, uh, but in English, we still don't. So we use, we use that phrase. Um, <laughs> yeah, and Bjorning, you are so right. Uh, he says, "Who oh boy, you would have to ha you would have to have a deep cut into the appendices to get Arda if you only read the Lord of the Rings, for sure, for sure." Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. Okay, so so the answer to the data on the sun and the moon is that the data that we have so far shows uh, it's well the raw data, the raw numerical data doesn't help us. Right. It doesn't help us to make a decision about this. Um, again, if uh, it would help if we only had a few, like if there were like 10 or fewer instances of sun and moon with capital letters um, outside of other proper nouns like Tower of the Sun, um, then we would we'd be able to. Uh, we'd be able to maybe look at those instances and make some progress, um, but they aren't. We have a lot of uh, examples, but again, enough diversity where about a third each way for sun and moon, somewhere around a third 
30 to 40 percent of the usages are capitalized and, and the rest are not, which still suggests to me that there's a pattern there. Um, he might be, Tolkien makes mistakes, but I don't think he's going to make a mistake 40 percent of the time he does something like that. Um, I don't think so. It's possible. You can't absolutely rule it out, but I quite doubt it. Um, so I think we'd have to, but yeah, we'd, we'd need more time to actually study the context, um, ideally of all of them, um, but uh, uh, at least of a good sampling of them so we could begin to get, we'd begin to get a sense. Um, so I agree. This is beginning to sound not like a conclusion we can come to this evening, uh, but potentially a, uh, uh, a really good moot paper there. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we'll have, to, we'll have to await further analysis of that question. But we skipped over the moon. We got as far as the road from Holland to the mountain pass. The moon, now at the full, rose over the mountains and cast a pale light in which the shadows of stones were black. Many of them looked to have been worked by hands, though now they lay tumbled and ruinous in a bleak, barren land. Um, it's impossible, I find, anyway, not to think of that conversation uh, from Legolas before when he was telling us about the stones of this country. The stones which looked to have been worked by hands. These are the stones that remember. These are the stones whose voices Legolas was hearing before, that now lay tumbled and ruinous in a bleak, barren land. High they built us, fair they wrought us, but they are gone. They are gone. These are the morning rocks. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. The, ro the morning rocks of the evening here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yes, Giark uh, 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 of Gondor, um, yes, is uh, he's saying the moon now at the full. And he is recalling in the uh, Art of the Manuscript um, uh, at Marquette um, manuscript, uh, Tolkien's meticulous notes and hand-drawn charts about the lunar cycle. Um, yeah, yeah, this is, he absolutely does that kind of thing for no further payoff than this, right? Uh, to know what this phase of the moon is going to actually be on this day and to be able to say in four, in a four-word uh, phrase thrown in the, in the middle of this sentence uh, with accuracy what it is. Yep, yep. And yeah, sorry I didn't catch up with you when I was in Milwaukee last weekend. Um, I was really enjoying my look uh, through that exhibit. Um, they had a whole like section of the wall with four different versions of the A. Arundel poem, Bilbo's poem in Rivendell. The A. Arundel was a Mariner poem. Um, they had the fair copy of the transitional poem, uh, the one which is the the one where he's transitioning from Errantry to Arundel, the one with the guy who falls asleep in the boat and then gets wafted over to Valinor and then put on the ship and uh, and uh, uh, ends up killing uh, Ungoliant and all that stuff. They had that one there. Plus, they had the final fair copy of the one um, 
they had the final fair copy of the one which Christopher Tolkien claims is the final version that didn't get sent to the publishers. Um, but um, anyway, so yeah, that was, I spent a good deal of time with that. Um, when we, um, uh, when we get to Lorien, uh, we'll talk about the, we'll talk about the graphs. Um, this was probably the thing that I was most enjoying thinking about as I was looking at the manuscript exhibit in Marquette, which is marvelous. If you get a chance to see it, you should. Um, but uh, the um, he Tolkien graphed the passage of time in Lorien, um, and oof. Um, yeah, yeah. Evil Doctor Cannon was there, um, uh, so he and I and a couple others were were looking at the um, <laughs> Jackie. Your brain still hurts. Yeah, great to meet you this weekend, by the way, Jackie. That was that was fun. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot there. Um, I'm. I so I want to see when, when when we get to Lorien, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Um, but uh, so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm I'm not gonna. Digress. This is me not digressing. I'm not going to digress on that. But yes, the um, keeping track of the phases of the moon are really is uh, a very uh, Tolkienian kind of a kind of thing to do here. The sentence, the moon now at the full, rose over the mountains and cast a pale light in which the shadows of stones were black. I love that sentence for the unnecessary detail. Um, yes, the shadows of the stones were black, um, like film at eleven. Like this is not a news flash here, right? This doesn't it doesn't need to be said. Um, what do we get from this sentence? What is he giving us here? On the one hand, we're getting this. Notice the, sort of the eeriness of this scene. On the one hand, this is a good thing. Right now, by the way, notice what this means. When were they going to rest for the night? When were they going to do that 36-hour rest deal? At the full moon is when they were going to do that, right? Which is pretty smart, right? Shows you that Aragorn and Gandalf are really paying attention. Well, if there's a night when you're going to rest, um, the company needs some rest anyway. Um but doesn't it now kind of make you suspicious? It makes me suspicious anyway, in retrospect. Um, Gandalf seems to have been going out of his way not to freak people out. Remember? Um, so maybe there was more behind it than just, I think we could all use a rest. Maybe it's, the moon is full. There could be quite a bit of light tonight. Um, traveling by night on the night of the full moon could be almost as bad as traveling in the middle of the day as far as being able to keep ourselves secret and unseen. So maybe we should sit this one out, right? And side bonus, everybody could use some extra rest too. But I shan't mention the danger of going on tonight to the hobbits. And so this would seem to me to be a third piece of evidence that they're taking risks that they feel some significant urgency and that they are choosing speed over secrecy here in this particular sprint um, from, well, I say sprint. Um, um, 
Next, later on in the book, we will see sprints compared with which uh, this is walking backwards. Sorry, I'm channeling the Red Queen from through the looking glass. Never mind. But the point is, um, they're not sprinting as fast as they will sprint at later times. But still, nevertheless, um, this uh, and I know that the not quite full moons are also pretty bright. Um, but um, but remember how clear the sky was, Wobe, in that that afternoon. Right. It looked like being a beautifully clear night. Um, and night of the full moon. And so they said, hey, let's stop. Um, but, um, yeah, so do I think that Aragorn is afraid they were found by the dark birds, even though we don't think they were? Um, yes. Possibly. I think he's not ruling it out. Um, I think he's not willing to, you know, proceed without change based on it. But I think more importantly... It's one thing to say there might be spies around. It's another thing to say there might be a genocide of crows sweeping the entire country, right, between the river and the mountains. Um, if there is that kind of a concerted search going on in this region, then they've got to suspect that whoever is organizing the search is really... Again, like, as I was saying last time, not last time, Two weeks ago, whenever it was, when we were discussing the genocide of crows, it's hard for me to believe that there is a crabine left in Dunland uh, when this is happening. I mean, there are a lot of crows here, right? Um, I can't imagine that uh, Saruman, if Saruman indeed it be who is commanding these crows, I can't believe that Saruman has so many crabine at his disposal that he can send a full genocide of crows north this way and another one, you know, off in another direction and another, like that he's got like four or five of these uh, um, genocides of crows sitting around. I don't, that's too many. I don't think so. Um, and so my suspicion is that the fact that this area is being scoured as thoroughly as that is a warning sign. They're like, we've got to get out of here. Um, this is not just they've placed spies all over the place and we're going through their network. That they seem to have been assuming uh, from the beginning. Um, yeah, I don't know what the collective noun for multiple genocides of crows uh, would be. Josh, would that be an apocalypse of crows? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> I don't really know. I don't think I don't think that Saruman has an apocalypse of crows. Um, <laughs> an obliteration of crows. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> I like that, Valori. An obliteration of, of crows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I think, I think that could work. Um, <laughs> but anyway, he doesn't have it. He doesn't have it. A genocide, I think, is as far as he can go. Um, but um, uh, an extinction of crows. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I like that. That's even better, actually. Yep, yep. Uh, that's good. An extinction of crows. <laughs> Anyhow, um, so he doesn't have an extinction. Uh, he just, he just, he just has. Uh, um, <laughs> he he just has a genocide. Um, but anyway, so so again, I don't, I don't think they necessarily think they they need to think that they've been spotted. I think that they. Um, just know their chances of being spotted have gone up very quickly enough that they just 
they want to get out, especially since, remember, Gandalf says they're going to be exposed anyway. And if they're close enough that they can make a run for it and get to Garothros fairly quickly, um, they're not going to increase their danger much by being spotted now. Um, yeah, so they've chosen speed over stealth now at this point. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yep. Um, good. But but anyway, back to that description uh, that cast a pale light in which the shadows of the stones were black. Um, first of all, that's just a wonderful visualization. I mean, I, 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 if you think about being outside in the moonlight, um, the sh- shadows of moonlight when the when the when the moonlight is bright enough to cast sharp shadows on the ground uh there is an ominous deepness right i mean there's shadow and then there's shadow and the shadow of moonlight is pitch black shadow right like a, a dark rock which is casting a shadow in the moon merely looks like twice its normal size um there's uh, the shadows of of moonlight like that are so deep as to look almost solid. Uh, and I think that that's what we're, you know, what, what we're being invited to picture here in our minds. But there's something sort of ominous and scary. Moonlight, uh, moonlight transforms a landscape. There's a marvelous descriptive passage about this in Watership Down that I always think about. Um, about how moonlight is a kind of light you never take for granted. Um, it is, whenever you see something in moonlight, it's always special. And that's true. But uh, when you are moving forward in fear like that, that specialness can be eerie uh, very quickly. Yeah, Miss Ray says it makes her think of the ominous stones in the Barrow Downs. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Those black standing stones, um, yeah, almost, uh, almost, almost like that. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, Bjorning says, uh, "Remember how the bright sky seemed unfriendly with the birds overhead. Now that night uh, is bleak and dark, uh, is bleak and bright too. Uh, Holland is definitely unwholesome. Yes, um, a beautiful moonlit night." I mean, how lovely, just like the afternoon was lovely. Yes, the uh, the loveliness of the sky and the brightness of the light is, in both cases, overcast with this sense of uh, this sense of, of of eeriness and bleakness. Right. Um, yes. Yes. And yes, Dan, it is hard to, um, especially in later. Um, uh, when we think of the significance of the sh- of the shadow, right from later in the story, um, and we haven't had too much of that talk yet. That is the association of Sauron with shadows. I know we've gotten it in the Ring poem, of course, um, but we haven't started to talk that way casually in the book so far. Um, we won't really get there until we get to Gondor, I think. Um, uh, but but nevertheless, this idea of Holland, which was wholesome, right. Now this pale light over the land with these pockets of black shadows can't help but be ominous. And, and remember, not only the black shadows are ominous, the pale light. Um, if we remember, pale, pale light is almost never good in Tolkien, right? The wraiths 
like the 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 light of the of the Morgul blade cast a pale light. Um, white light can be good. Pale light is almost never good. Um, pale light is associated with uh, uh, sorcery and death and uh, oppression. Um, yeah, Gollum's eyes are a pale light. Yeah, absolutely. Um, pale light. I can't think off the top of my head of an instance in which a pale light is a good thing in Tolkien's descriptions. I'm trying to think. Can't think of any. There might be one or two. Maybe. Um, but um, uh, but I don't. It's not common in any case. Right. Um, so I would expect the moon at the full to shine a more benevolent sort of light, like a white light or a silver light. Silver light is good. Pale light, in which the shadows of the stones were black. Um, especially as we're reminded, what are the stones that are casting black shadows in the pale light? The bereaved stones, the ruins. Holland is lost. Holland is dead. Um, Holland is in decay, and only those stones, these stones, casting the black shadows, remember the elves that were, and still mourn them and lament them. Um, yeah, yeah. And yes, all of this is starting to sound more and more like the Barrow Downs now, isn't it? Um, yes. And the bleak, barren land. Um, yes, and Wob, you're right. Bleak were the weeks they traveled to get here. They've had a short-lived reprieve, which I agree does sound like a false reprieve now. Um, and now they find themselves here um, in a bleak, barren land. The whole thing, like the the moonlight has transformed the land, but it's not really the moonlight, right? If you looked at it with a different attitude, it would look like, you know, silver light. I'm sure if I were to just stumble on this landscape without context, I would be like, how lovely. This is beautiful. Like, look at the silver light and all the things you can... It's their fear, right? It's their fear which is changing it. The the light of the moon instead of a nice benevolent, benevolent white or silver light looks... Uh, looks pale instead. Um, they are particular. Their eyes are particularly drawn to the black shadows of the stones, and um, instead of evidence of benevolent elves that were once here, whose wholesomeness may linger in the land, now instead all they see is ruinousness in a bleak, barren land. Um, yes. How things have changed, and things have really just changed um, as a result. I, again, I think as, as not only a result, but an expression of their fear. And the last thing I will point out before we will end our book discussion for the night, notice how Tolkien accomplishes this effect without telling us a single thing about what the characters are thinking or feeling. Um, once again, as before, when we were looking at the at Sam watching the birds, instead of telling us what it, what the characters are thinking, right, or what the characters are feeling, he just leads us to feel the same thing. Um, and I do think that, especially that second alliteration, really helps to bring that home. Um, we are set up for it by tumbled with the BL there, but then it really 
hits us in a bleak, barren land. The alliteration really makes that phrase pop and become the kind of uh, take home, right? Um, we leave this paragraph, we literally leave this paragraph with that looming in our minds, right? Um, Holland, which we are now leaving behind, certainly no longer wholesome, but now a bleak and barren land. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, JJ, I, I agree. JJ says, every time I hear of a pale light in contrast to white light, my immediate thought is of the pale horse uh, in Revelation 6. Yeah, the death horse. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think um, that is not a coincidence, I think. I think. Um, yeah, yeah. There is interestingly, of course, also a white horse. Um, but it is different from the pale horse. Uh, yeah, yeah, very quite different from the pale horse. Um, but yep, yep. No, I think, um, again, I'm not saying that Tolkien is like making an explicit reference, right? That pale equals death in that same way. Um, but do I think that the way that he sort of, sort of characterizes paleness, right? And pale light is influenced by the pale horse um, and its rider's name was death. Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. Um, okay. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, cool. Gildalowin, thank you for that. Gildalowin says the Greek word for the pale horse, which of course Tolkien would have known, um, is chloros, which is a pale yellow-green, a sickly color. Um, yep, yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, yep, no, not saying the pale horse is evil. Um, uh, Bjorning necessarily. No, uh, just creepy, as indeed almost everything with uh, pale light is uh, is creepy. Hmm. Cranmancer, let's think about that next week. I'm running out of time, but that's a really interesting example. Cranmancer came up with a possibly a positive instance of pale light. There's a pale light lingering in the West uh, when Boromir is describing um, his dream the prophetic dream that Faramir had many times and came once to him as well. Um, and yeah, I would presume, JJ, that that is where we get chlorine from, um, that word. Yeah, exactly. Presumably. Um, okay. Okay. Um, that ends the time. And next, I'm really excited for next week because next week we get to one of the passages that I've been looking forward to for a long time. Um, and we'll see if we can figure out what's going on there. All right. Um, thanks, everybody. That concludes our book discussion for the evening. It is field trip time. And let's see what we can... Oh, dear. I have no idea. Oh, can you hear me? Yep. Oh, dear. Just having some issues here. Hang on a second. Oh, Let me see boy. If I can get my issues here together. Okay. Sorry. Game. It's been happening. Not quite sure why, but let me get it sorted here should be able to get back in if i got in once i should be able to get in again i make no such promises i would think so hopefully maybe you? some of the stuff doing all right it's funny that chloris came out because my brother and i were just talking about that on saturday as we were talking about this uh metal song that i have um about the the four horses and um i thought it said cream and he my brother corrected me and said no it's it's green 
And I'm like, mm-hmm. what do you mean green? And he said, yeah, it comes from the, and we looked it up. It came from the Greek word chlor. So that is where we get chlorophyll, chloroform. That's all that. Exactly. And it was, yeah. A co- yeah. it was a color that was used to describe the color of a corpse. Like specifically in, in written right. examples. So like that, the, the, the relation of pale to corpse was definitely known at the time. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So yeah, just weird that I actually know that. <laughs> Right. Right. I am the master of strange trivia. Okay. All right. I am. Uh, I'm coming back in now. Herman Munster color. I don't, <laughs> I don't remember what the color episodes look like. Just the black and white ones. Okay. All right. Wow, well, speaking of corpses, time to do spooky stuff. Okay. So, are we are we going to the fall festival? Should I accept the fall festival? Uh, uh yeah, you get a free travel. All right. There we go. I'll get the free travel then. All right. Oh, of course I need inventory space. My inventory is ridiculous. Oh no. Yeah, they're going to dump got, a I've got bunch so many unopened there. boxes of stuff. Well, in that case, funny. I guess you're you're not going to need the uh, Halloween mask I brought you. Then. <laughs> Let's see. I think I can pitch some potions. Okay. Yeah, just drink uh, them all. Okay. Hey. Okay. No, it's okay. Hang on. Gotta keep pitching things. Keep pitching things. Right, hang on. Okay finishing all right what do we have um map to the party tree there we go got it okay uh i think the rest of us we can take a stable there or i got my travel skill i can take us to mickle delving and then we can ride to the party tree anyone else has a travel skill to hobbiton or in, in mickle delving we can go from there okay if not you can run outside to the stable master and grab the hewers. Party tree. What is the. Um, mm-hmm. I, this is probably something I've thought about at some point in the past before, but what is the historical frame of the party tree festival site? Because, I mean, this is the old party tree, so it's presumably pre-Sharky, right? Yeah, because remember, that was, like, spoiler alert, that was one of the visions that Sam saw, where they were cutting down the old party tree. Yes, exactly. But, like, the specific campground with all of the extra ovens and stuff like that, that was all installed by Bilbo for the 111th birthday. Right, for his party. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so, yes, this over here is, of course, the tremendous open-air kitchen which um, would presumably still have been here. And it does make you wonder if, I mean, even in the text, was the open-air kitchen dismantled? Presumably it was. But even the way that um, the way that Sam talks about the party tree, um, I mean, it's the tree from the party, Bilbo's party. Yeah. 
I mean, these are big clay ovens, too. Like, if you built them right, they'd last for a long time in any weather. Right. They just might need new roofing every decade or so. Yeah, no, just what I'm wondering is, I mean, so the, again, this is another thing that is making me wonder about the historical frame. So is this supposed to be, do you think, like, we're standing here Mm -hmm. during a festival that is taking place somewhere between, like, in the same historical frame as the rest of the Shire quests and things? Um, Yes, pretty much, like, right after Frodo was just left. Right after Frodo was, but before, yeah. Yeah, and... um, uh, Sackville Baggins on the hill, and that's where actually the the, the haunted house storyline comes into play, because okay. there was a there was a rock slide, and they discovered this hidden door in the hill. Right, right. Okay, okay. So, therefore, in the conception of the game story, mm-hmm. Bilbo's open air kitchen that was constructed for the party now 17 years ago Mm -hmm. um, was kept in service. Mm -hmm. Um, In theory. Yeah. I mean, I I don't see how it could be otherwise. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it was kept in service and Mm -hmm. um, therefore within this story framework again i don't see any evidence in the text to think that that would have been so i mean but it is, like it is, communal it is. ovens are a useful thing to have like this mm-hmm. like this would be a great place for people to gather and bake bread or something if they didn't have the means to do so well yeah it's the main thing that i'm thinking is it adds a new sort of layer of meaning uh to sam's referring of the tree i mean the party tree is a sam phrase he's the only one who ever says that um now i'm not saying that it's idiosyncratic to sam personally that he's the only one who calls it the party tree he's just the only one in the book we hear calling it the party tree i don't think Um, he invented the phrase i doubt it um and i again i don't think there's any reason to think he's the only one um but what it does suggest so what it suggests is that this is what people what the locals now call it, right? He's the only one besides Frodo who is a local to around here, neither Merry nor Pippin are locals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this is definitely like the community space at the foot of the, the great landowner's place. Like, you know, like in a lot of English places, you have your festival grounds that's on the great Lord's estate. Yes, that's exactly what I think the game is suggesting. And again, though, I see no evidence in the text to suggest that that uh, it was so necessarily it's a love like it could be called the party tree by the locals, even if just because of the one occasion, like the one occasion of the great party, Bilbo's great party um, was so memorable and has taken on such a prominent role in uh, local history um, that everybody still calls it the party tree from just the one party. But that this area with its open air kitchen, which could have been maintained um, and then this be taken as the general place for partying um, for years afterwards, the party tree could have seen, you know, Dozens of parties since Bilbo's place party. where Mad Baggins disappeared. I mean, it's kind of right. historic place now. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 I like the idea. As I say, I, I don't see any evidence in the text to think that it necessarily is the case. 
but I certainly don't think it's inconsistent um, uh, or impossible knowing, that this could Also, just knowing what a tight-knit community this is and how they are very, you know, they celebrate everything and they, sh they share mm -hmm. everything and they help everybody out. This would be an ideal place for future birthday parties and weddings and, you know, mm -hmm. memorial wakes or something like that. This would be a great place to, you know, meet in the morning before you go out and work in the fields or drink your cider afterwards. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I it's agree. a giant pub. <laughs> right, right. No, I think that's interesting. Um, yeah, I just, I think I'd never fully processed, like I'd, I'd always taken when I'm here at festivals, um, which I don't do too much of, which is another reason why I probably haven't thought about this that much, is that I don't do a lot of festivaling um, generally uh, in Lotro, but um, that I... Um, I'd never really kind of processed through the historical frame and the basically the kind of, you know, the story, the story that they've mm -hmm. added um, here, which I like, which works. And, of course, gives them an excuse to keep the kitchen, right, so that the kitchens are still here, um, which mm -hmm. is more fun than having them, you know, having been dismantled uh, at that point. So um, and I oh, oh, I'm, love I'm... the cellar door. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was yeah. a that was a parting gift from Bilbo to just. Cellar door is cool. Yeah. Um, was... Yeah. Of course, the uh, it's a it's a rather deep cut reference, right? To uh, uh, that phrase, cellar door is one of the ones which is, is the, a phrase which Tolkien gave as an example of a phrase which is intrinsically beautiful. He loved the sound of the phrase cellar door. Of course, they included that in the, um, you know, the biopic that was done, the Tolkien biopic that was done a couple years back. It was one of my favorite mm -hmm. scenes in that movie, the conversation between him and Edith about cellar door. Um, mm. But uh, anyhow. Okay. Um, so, sorry, where are we going? <laughs> here we oh, are. Uh, the horse to Wismead is up here next to Bingo. Next to Bingo, over by, uh, where is Bingo? Bingo, I'm just gonna follow the crowd. Oh, there's. I'll there's... put I'll put a beacon up here. Don't worry. Okay, so. Glad I held on to these. Bingo's not in his like garish green clothes. Okay. He's in his party clothes. He's in his party clothes. Absolutely. Okay, so we've got a oh, rather eerie looking pony. Looks like a how scarecrow. Make, how do they make the pony's eyes glow like that? Wibbly wobbly magicy wajiki. Huh. <laughs> Cellar door is very close to the incorrect pronunciation of Kelleborn. Yeah, I'll give you that one. Wonder it's it makes true. you do it does make you wonder why he decided to use a hard C instead of a soft C sound. Well, it was not even that way. Like he, he initially spelled it with a K. And then decided to, or ah, was contemplating very spelling it with a K. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, was, that's a very was, Greek yeah. spelling. Whoa, hang on. I'm accidentally hitting the wrong button. I almost traveled out of here accidentally. Okay. Um, uh, so, actually, we don't need a horse. There's, so, there's not a lot here. We can, okay, we can just, just walk, actually. All right. <laughs> Unless you want this to show off your spooky it. mounts. No, I don't have one, so. Okay. So, we are... At Wistmead, so this is for festival goers. So we come here, and the first thing we see, 
So I'm just going to be looking around. So first of all, where are we? Are we on the map uh, or not on the map? We're not Where's on the map. map. We're in a sort of parasite dimension, to quote Terry Pratchett. Um, <laughs> okay. We've got these crowds of bats flitting through. Okay. Yep. We're, right. we're in a very uh, forlorn part of the Shire that apparently hasn't been occupied since before the Great Winter and the okay. days of dearth. Okay. Um, and... Uh, all right. So we have these huge um, thorns and brambles. Yeah. With the contrast of a little hobbit lantern with pumpkins sitting under it, right? So we get this little glimpse, and these two hobbits just kind of chatting here. Mm -hmm. um, so here we have this little glimpse of, like, cheerful harvest festival in the well, midst Well, that of... lantern's seen better days, though. It's covered in rust. It is beat up. It's true. Yeah, the glass is broken. And then we've got this cheerful walking person. I always look forward to the Harvest Festival. This is all good fun. The decorations here are something. Yes, Mr. Indeed. Goldworthy has put together quite a spooky place here. Okay, so it's deliberately spooky. Yes, it, it was a creative endeavor by Mr. Uh, Goldy, Gold something. Okay. All right, so that's why. So everyone is enjoying the deliberate spookiness mm -hmm. of this area. Okay. Yes, I, I believe he'd recently purchased the place due to its unsavory reputation, just to sort of have fun. This is your house on haunted hill scenario. Right. Okay. So on we've got. Disneyland. Yeah. La Spooky la Disneyland. la la. Okay. So we've got a little graveyard. What are those flowers? Wow, that's a, a pretty tombstone? spooky tombstone there. That almost looks... I don't think I've seen that kind of tombstone before. I wonder if these are real or if they're fake. Well, I was wondering that too. Got maple leaves on them. But do we know anything about the funerary behavior of the hobbits? None. This is the only cemetery I've seen that ne even near hobbits. We don't know yes. if they do barrows even like that would make more sense traditionally or cairns. I'm trying to think of any evidence oh yeah dark secret of the hobbits reference direct or indirect to the funerary I mean, habits of the shire i mean and, he's tolkien is loth to talk about anyone dying at all in hobbiton everywhere else it's just you know <laughs> Par, par for the course, you know, that's Tuesdays, but uh, in the we Shire, do, yes. it seems like a much rarer event. Belongsman's got it. Yes, I thought there must be something. Ah. In the scouring, yeah, hobbits are buried that's... after the Battle of Bywater. Yeah, but that, that was a mass event, though. That's a little different than a It's true. It doesn't... Thing. Right. And so there might well be... There are different things there, like a monument is erected, which is would presumably not be normal. Um, yeah. But... Um, but that, but presumably they're not going to follow a totally different, like, interment practice, right? So Yeah, no, um, I'm just picturing a mound like that giant one in Poland. Right, right. Yeah, so they may bury them in a larger mound. They will erect a monument. But um, but they, but I, but I, it does definitely suggest that the hobbits are definitely buried. Yeah. But the tombstones are what we're questioning here. Right. And tombstones like, we haven't seen anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, this is yeah, this is the first time we've seen tombstones in Hobbits. 
trying to make out what's yep. if there's anything carved in the bottom half of this uh, tombstone I, I don't think so I mean not that I can tell and there aren't words but I just meant no here lies no dear old Fred a big rock fell on his head yeah yeah nothing like that yeah no there's nothing to read or see there's no other than that yeah they're I very worn I other because they were uh, for a flower it looks to me like it has a center like a, like a flower center yeah it's a bit like Navi from Legend of Zelda yeah um, and then this obelisk here is just puzzling yes and this one over here almost looks Angmarish. These are old, old, old. So yes, I don't know whether or not we are meant to understand that this is, like, is this spooky just because it, again, it's deliberately, he's, this is an, this is the deliberate scoopy, spooky atmosphere has been cultivated here. Scoopy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess. Like, yeah, but, and the thing is, like, the only time we've seen headstones like this are in human cemeteries. Not, not, uh, we've never right. seen an we've inkling seen, of any of these. We've seen cemeteries in Breland, right? Yep. Yeah, I think and, so. And in other human civilizations, like the one outside of Mirkwood. And of course, um, the Barrow Downs. Yeah, yeah, right. Of course, the Barrow Downs are their, their own thing, right? But um, what I'm wondering is, thinking about things like the obelisk and these other sort of unsettling shaped ones, like, is it like a crown? Is it like a horned helm? Is it like a vulture sitting there like I don't know those look deliberately creepy I don't know about the flowers or leaves um, but yeah, it just it just might be aping human stuff yeah um, yeah um, yes well since we have no other ways of guessing um, yeah because we have no points of comparison no hobbit graveyards mm -hmm. yeah it's just like you know they don't strike me as like the type of people to have memento moris or anything like that in life they're just kind of too untouched by that yeah well what they what they what it suggests that is the lack of hobbit graveyards what that suggests is that it's not that they don't bury people it's that they don't um, they don't set them aside, right, with the fence around, and with yeah. the tombstones, with the with the memorials over mm -hmm. them. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll row here. I I agree with you. I think it does seem likely that, um, like humans equal scary for hobbits. That is that there are. That this is. Not scary in the way that an, a normal graveyard might be scary to us, but it's it's alien scary. It's not familiar scary. Oh, right? oh, I get it. I get it. 
this is what a hobbit who has never seen the Barrow Downs thinks the Barrow Downs look like. Right, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, and but there are cemeteries in Bree that are like this, right? Yeah, they're um, like this, but they're not like the Barrow Downs. Like they're not, which of course it, no one would have seen except for all the hobbits that are swarming exactly. around. Exactly. All they know is that the Barrow Downs are a burial ground for humans. Right. Ergo, this is what right. the Barrow Downs look like to someone who's never seen one. Right. Quite possibly so. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, it's the Vikings with horns things. It's just part of what, you know, it's it, they take what they know and, and just mix right. bits up. It's very Victorian. Right, right. Okay, here we go. Yeah, see, this is another prelandish looking structure here. Look how tall these building frames are. Yeah, agreed. There's nothing hoppity about this at all. I mean, even apart from the fact that it's a building and not a smile. Mm-hmm. Oh, look this... at the moon. Great moon in here. Moon? There's a moon. I'm not seeing the moon. Oh, there it's, it is. It's uh, a, a, a little northish. Yeah. Yes, there it is. Very atmospheric, very eldritch. Yes. It is a nice moon. But yes, okay, so with that then would suggest that two things, both the graveyard and this ruin are mm -hmm. designed to like this was never a hobbit house yeah so but also this used the, to be a place this is a ghost town right it's the ruins it's human ruins uh -huh. and human graveyards which are particularly yeah. spooky and scary yeah. um that is again i come back as i was saying alien not familiar right so instead of saying we are looking for, um, we are looking at um, the familiar, uh, uh, you know, a hobbit hole, yeah. but one that's yeah. run down and creepy, um, you know, a hobbit grave site, whatever that looks like, but like creepy. They're not doing it that way. They're not trying yeah. to make them think about, in a sense, they're not really thinking about their own mortality or the mortality exactly. of their culture. It's it's less it's less uh inappropriate morbidity and more dark tourism yeah like, exactly. like visiting the catacombs as opposed to you know visiting a local current modern graveyard which seems a little disrespectful yes yes yeah i agree so it yeah is... that was marketing research went into this didn't it exactly exactly well it's getting late um and we can come back next week and continue to explore as we have at least one yeah i want to explore more of the hobbit psyche or surrounding death and fears <laughs> yeah this is fun um so is... we'll, we'll we'll continue our uh our examination as you say of hobbit cultural psyche um as we uh as we work this out there's some fun stuff here um oh, night before but... day of the dead too look at that exactly so next yeah next week will be november 1st right mm-hmm all, all Saints Day, I believe. Yes. So on the evening Saints. of All Saints yep. Day, we will, uh, um, uh, we will uh, get back together again, and we will continue to explore this. I wish me it'll still be open, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. Pretty we'll have sure. to find out. It should be. It should be open till the second, I believe. Okay. Yeah, that's that makes sense. That's the Wednesday. All right, so we'll finish it up then next week. Awesome. Excellent. Cool. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we'll to be continued here our exploration of Westmead next time. 
Thanks, everybody, for joining us, and have a good week. See you guys Bye. next week. Happy Halloween. <laughs> Bye now.